Now, our Bible reading this morning is from 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and we're reading through verses 1 to 7. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Let's hear the word of God. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 7. This is a true saying. If a man desireth the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Now, if you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to read there five verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll read from verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, my text today is really taken from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through to 7. We could also think about Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. You see, my theme today, although not the most thrilling of subjects, as I've said in prayer, it's an important subject, and my theme is this, the office and the qualification of an elder. Now, this is the third message in this series of messages pending our election on the 8th of March to do with the genius of the Presbyterian form of church government. You see, 
when even children, young people, hear the word government, they think of somebody being in charge. So if I was to ask the question, well, who's in charge of Carrie Duff FPC? You might all look up in the pulpit and say, oh, the minister is. Well, I'll tell you you're wrong. The minister's not in charge of this congregation. Now, of course, he has been gifted a charge. He has taken a charge upon himself before God to look after this congregation. But there's the world of difference of thinking of one man being in charge. You see, the minister's not the boss of the church. I say this respectfully. He's not the Pope. In Roman Catholicism, the Pope is the top dog. He is the man in charge of all who are found within the communion of Roman Catholicism. In the Anglican communion, if we asked who's in charge of the Anglican church, well, the answer would be the Archbishop, uh, Justin Welby. Not that he's doing a great job. But the minister of, say, this church or the pastor of the local Baptist church, he's not in charge in that sense. And if he's not in charge, then you see, you have a right to ask, well, who is? And here's the real answer. Now listen to me carefully. Here's in charge of carried off FPC and here's the answer. Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ exercises headship over his church. He's the head of the church, which is the body. And I'm under Christ and in submission to him. Now, how does he exercise headship? Here's the answer. Through church-recognized, spiritually mature elders. Men who are saved by the grace of God and men who are spiritually minded and spiritually gifted and they, under Christ, the good shepherd, take charge of shepherding his flock. You see, in every local church, according to the New Testament, it's made up, if I read Philippians chapter 1 to you, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. The church is made up of saints, those who have gathered out of love for the Lord to worship him. And the church, of course, meets not only as a saintly body, but they meet with the bishops and the elders. The word bishop is episkopos. There's two aspects. There's a teaching elder. And there's a ruling elder. The word bishop and presbyter, uh, elder, is, is used interchangeably in the New Testament, as we've already seen. So you've got to think of a congregation of saints, and they're there with the bishops, the elders, the teaching elder, the ruling elder, and the deacons. And I want to make it clear that no man has any right uh, to form a, 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 a different form of government for the local church. This is how Jesus Christ has constituted his church. Now, let me say this this morning respectfully. I'm a free Presbyterian by, by conviction. I believe in the Presbyterian form of church government as the general rule. 
uh, for church government is set forth in the scriptures. And in um, uh, Acts chapter 15, if you want to turn there this morning, Acts chapter 15, we read in verse 5, there's a problem in the church. It says, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep Moses' law. So here's a problem in the church, right? And what was this problem? How to be saved? How to be a Christian? So this was a spiritual problem that arose in the church at Jerusalem. And uh, this matter was fundamental then to the flock of God. And, and how did they resolve it? Acts 15 verse 6, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. You see, it was no longer a local church matter in Jerusalem. There was much disputing about this matter. And men from each of the local churches in around Jerusalem and beyond, they came together, the apostles, all 12 of them, and the elders from these different churches, and they decided and settled the matter. You see, that's a system of interdependency, not independency. Every local church, to a certain degree, is autonomous. It can decide and do its own thing. But there's not full independency. Because here's this matter that was spiritual in nature, and it was taken in hand by the first local church, presbytery made up of the apostles and the elders. And I'm not suggesting, and we're not suggesting this morning, that every precise detail of church policy is set forth in the Bible. There are broad principles set down. Other details have to be settled according to the general rule of Scripture and also what we call uh, scripturally gained common sense. However, let me stress this. No system of church government, and I, I mean this, listen to me carefully, is better than the men who run the church. No system of church government is better than the men who run the church. Because remember, they run the church under Christ. He's the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, the good shepherd. And they're running it for Christ. You see, some churches even uh, run along Presbyterian guidelines. There's men in office in the pulpit who are not saved. Men in the elders in the pew who are not saved, unconverted. And to me, that's unbiblical. We have men who are religious and respectable, but not regenerate, not, not born again. And some churches that are totally independent of any other churches are, are, are run almost like a, like a zoo and, and anything goes. And while that's true, the local church will not be any better than the men that run it. And each local church we should endeavor to have a faithful preacher of the word of God who's saved and loves Jesus Christ. And accompanying that faithful pastor is a body of faithful men who will help him as under shepherds look after the flock of God. But you can have a faithful pastor and you can have faithful elders and he could work hard and he could have a band of faithful praying people around him. And yet that local church will never grow, will never be established, will never be strengthened any more 
than the spirituality and the strength of the men that God has raised up to be the teaching and the ruling elders in the church. If men are of poor character, if men haven't a good public testimony, if men have, have no ability to lead the flock, if men make bad decisions, then that church will be a poor church. Maybe not even in riches or finances, but it will be poor spiritually and weak before God. So once good men come to the fore, men of God, men to lead and to bear rule, then I believe others will rise up and follow. Now, I want to say this. I thank the Lord for this congregation. I thank the Lord for gifting you to me. I thank the Lord for this church, and you know that, but, but this is not my church. Do you understand that? It's the Lord's church. And I'm going to tell you something else. It's not even your church. It's the Lord's. And you can be a foundation member. And you can be a praying member. And you can give generously to support the work and serve the Lord faithfully and have done over many years. And yet as far as ownership is concerned, it's not your church in that sense of ownership. It is Christ's church. He's the head of the church. He purchased the church with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. That's the nature of the church. Its very essence demands and necessitates the Spirit's ministry at the heart of church government. Why? Because the church was purchased by Christ. It's his particular possession. It's, 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 a, it's an institution that's precious to Christ. In the sight and the eye of the Lord. If I could put it this way. The church of Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the head of the body. He's the king over his people. And the function of church government is to follow Christ in the exercise of his headship over his church. You see, the question in this election that's coming up is not to me, what's the mind of the members? Who do the members want to be elected? The chief should be, what is the mind of Christ? He's the real, true Lord of the church. And I believe the mind of Christ is given to us in his word. And that's why it's necessary, just like we eat bread, that we've got to read and study the word of God to, to ascertain the mind of the Lord. And if you're in submission to Christ, as the Lord of the church, and you want to obey his word. And you want him to take care of the church business. So when we come together to take care of that church business, we, we'll set aside our prejudice. We'll set aside our whims, our notions, our fancies. We'll deny ourselves. And we'll reverently pray over the scriptures. And we'll cast our mind in light of the scriptures for the men who qualify in light of the scriptures. So, so that's really the introduction. And I'm sorry it's taken me so long to say that. But that's what was on my heart. Three things. Let's try and wrap this up in 15 minutes or so. Think about the, the confidence for the office of elder. You see, when I study the various qualifications for this office, it's interesting if you turn there to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, what Paul 
didn't actually say. Notice he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be. And we'll pause there. See, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't mention his prayer life. Why? Surely that's important. If a man doesn't come to the prayer meeting, don't elect that man to be an elder. But why does Paul not mention it? Because I believe he assumes that if a man desires the office of a bishop, that bishop, that elder, will be a praying man. He, he says um, he desires the good work of bishop then. The word then means therefore. A bishop then, in, in light of this work that's required of him. And what, what is meant then is certain standards that are required of this individual. He must be a man who's fit for this kind of work set forth in the scriptures. You see, this work involves a, a sacred stewardship. If you turn over there to Titus, just after 2 Timothy, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. The word steward denotes a servant. So think of a servant who has been commissioned by his master to administer the affairs of his master's house. He does it all in the name of his master. He does it for his master, according to the will of his master. And you see, elders are Christ's servants. They are saved men, born again, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. You have a testimony to a saving and keeping power, and they recognize that they are but the servants of Jesus Christ. They recognize they're slaves of Jesus Christ. And you see, the elder must recognize that they have been called to an office of service. They're not a lord over God's heritage. They're not a pope-like figure. They're not an archbishop-like figure. They're, they're not to abuse the authority they, they've been given. They're not to be arrogant men. They're to live in light of that one day that they will give an account of their stewardship to the Lord, for every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And as a servant, they exercise spiritual authority in the church. You see, the highest office of Christ's church is the office of the elder, the office of the bishop. It's an exalted office, the office of a bishop and an elder is just one of the same, episcopos, presbyteros, in the Greek it's the same office. They're used interchangeably, these words. Even in heaven, Revelation 24, what does it mention? It mentions the church being represented by 24 elders. You see, the, the elders, they have entered into a sacred stewardship, but the elders act with the authority of Christ. And when the elders meet, we, we call it the Kirk Session meeting, we make a decision collectively according to the will of God. That's an authoritative decision. And we, we have to make those decisions in light of eternity for the welfare of all the flock. Tell you something else. The elders' works involved a spiritual oversight. You see the word bishop there? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. It means an overseer. That's interesting. One who sees over the work of God. That's his job. He comes to see and inspect he, he investigates things that need to be investigated. He gives instruction. 
He makes an injunction. He's not a man who has his eyes closed. He's a man who sees things, hears things, knows things. His heart is open to the needs of the church. God's flock. What does God's flock need? And we need men who have that burden in their heart. What does Carrie Duff FPC need going forward? And one of the things that I emphasized on Wednesday night was we need the blessing of God. God's presence, God's power, God's provision. 1 Peter 5 and 2 talked about not taking the oversight. You see, elders are responsible for taking the oversight. Every elder involves shepherding Christ's flock. See, Christ's flock are like sheep. I told the children this this morning. Sheep are wayward. They are creatures you're wonder of. You've never heard of trained sheep, I told the children. You've heard of trained dogs, training lions, training elephants in the surface. I even told them about training pigs, you know, but sniffer pigs in Australia at various airports there to, to sniff out drugs. But sheep are not trained. We are all like sheep going astray, Peter says. 1 Peter 2.25, Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. See, we have that natural tendency to wander off, to wander away from God, follow the world, follow our own bias and sin. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? So and so. Well, well, we're prone to go astray. Sheep are wayward. Sheep are weak creatures. Flock of sheep, there's not much defense against a wolf or a bear. A donkey could kick, a horse could run, a dog could bite. But sheep, they're weak creatures. They're not able to fight for themselves. They need to be protected. And that's why God has put them into a flock. The flock of God. Feed the flock of God, Peter said. And if you're saved and love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then it's God's will that you belong to a flock. It's God's will that you, you gather with other sheep and you put yourself under shepherds. And we're all under the great chief shepherd of the sheep. See, see, without that, sheep can wander off. They can face dangers. They, they, they're, they're, they're prone to trouble. There's a weakness. But they're also worthwhile creatures. You know sheep are very valuable. Speaking to a man just yesterday from Western Australia, we talked about sheep, 20,000 of them. And some rams cost 20,000 Australian dollars. Some sheep here cost 20,000 pounds. Sheep are clean animals. Sheep provide wool and meat. Sheep are valuable. And sheep are worthwhile creatures in the eyes of the Lord. I wonder, do you know the Lord? Are you one of his own sheep? You know that he lived for you, he died for you, he saved you. You're his. You can say, now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. See, he puts you into a flock to protect you. And, and those that protect you are, act like the good Samaritan. They, they take care of you. They're there to help. They're, they're tender-hearted. They sacrifice themselves because they're fitted for this task. And as part of their job, they are willing to discipline the flock, like the shepherd with the crook and the staff. They paid diligent attention to uh, rule the flock. They, 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 they defend the flock. They're, they're faithful men. They, they can feed the flock just like a shepherd can. All that's needed for the flock, their heart and mind and souls involved. 
the competency to this office quickly, the calling to this office. If there's a true saying, Peter Paul says, if a man desireth the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Think of the calling of an elder. Is the man suited to this office? Let me tell you what he must have. He must have a father's heart. First Timothy 3 and 4 says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children as objection with all gravity. What does that mean? Not necessarily a married man, although that is help. A single man can be an elder. But even as a single man, that elder must have a father's heart for the family of God. There's a role for a father-like figure in the church of Christ. And the reference to children here is not a reference to adults. It's a reference to children who, who are under that age of responsibility. The Bible tells us here uh, in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 3, not a novice. In the Church of Scotland, they have a rule that no man under 21 is uh, allowed to become an elder. It's not a reference, I believe, to physical years. I believe it's a reference mainly to spiritual maturity. So suppose a man of 70 years of age got saved and came into the church, and after a year... There was an election for officers. That man's name potentially could be on the list uh, for um, the office of elder. But if he's only saved a few months or up to a year, then it would be my mind that he should willingly exclude himself from the office of an elder because the Bible says not a novice. Not, not somebody who's just spiritually born again of the spirit and added to the church uh, no, no, no uh, reference to his age it has to do with spiritual maturity the man must not only have a father's heart he must have a shepherd heart we have already read from 1 Peter 5 feed the flock of God and that means he'll do all that's necessary to look after Christ's flock he'll have a shepherd's heart see many are, men are academically minded, they know Greek and they know Hebrew they, they, they have great power of oratory. They, they have tremendous ability. But have the heart for the people of God. Sadly, I know many elders have no heart for the people of God. I know some pastors who have no heart for the people of God. And if you know that somebody has no heart for the people of God, and they're cold and callous, then they're not called to be an elder. An elder must have a care and concern for all the sheep. And he doesn't make decisions out of self-will. He's not a self-centered individual. But he makes decisions about what is best for all the flock. He is an eye to them now. He's an eye to them next week and next month and next year and into the future. The man must also have a leader's heart. Because he stands before the people. Someone that the people can look up to. He, he, he's there to guide by example. He's there to give exhortation and encouragement. Now, I'm suggesting that men will have all the uh, spiritual virtues that are necessary. Um, not suggesting that, but if a man hasn't got any spiritual virtues, a father's heart, a shepherd's heart, a, a leader's heart, if he's not in attendance at all the church meetings, the prayer meetings of the church, if he's not taken a lead and committed, 
then that's not the type of man that you want as an elder. Let me just say in closing, I'm still about a few minutes, I want you to think of the conduct of the office of the elder. Look, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll read through this list together, and I'll try and explain it. A bishop then must be blameless. What does that mean? Now, that's a reference to his character, his conduct, his conversation. Not saying he's perfect, not saying he's sinless, but it means that that man is beyond approach. He has a personal testimony. You see, the eyes of the church are upon him. But the eyes of the world are upon him. There must be no accusation that someone inside the church or outside the church that's true that could be put upon him. That could be put into the hands of his enemies to accuse him. So his private life, his public life, his business life, if he's a business person, is scrutinized by the people. Is he honest? Is he a man of his word? Is there an accusation against him? See, see Titus 1, 7 says there must be no accusation against him. He must be above and beyond reproach. He's not giving a reason to the enemies to blaspheme the Lord and the Lord's work. Haven't we heard it so often? Good living for a living. The man's not a liar. He's not a thief. He's not a rascal. There, there's no irresponsible behavior or speech. He's, he's not going to give a handle uh, to someone to uh, lay hold of, to, to bring a charge against him. If you think of a rock, children, and you want to move a big stone, you would get a long bore, uh, a long steel pole, and you would put it under the rock, and, and you could move it. It talks about leverage. No lever to the ungodly. That's really what it means. Let me tell you something else here. It mentions the husband of one wife. Big discussion we could have on that subject alone. What does that mean? Over there in Titus 1 and verse 6, it says something similar. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife. If I can put it this way, we in the Free Presbyterian Church do not believe that a divorced man should hold office in the church, no matter the circumstance, although I am very much in favor of um, the, the, the man who's the innocent party in a, a divorce. But this is the mind of the presbytery at this minute in time. A divorced man cannot hold office in the church. So he can't be a minister, he can't be an elder, um, he, he can't be a deacon. In Paul's day, the husband of one wife was because uh, people were just saved out of heathenism. Some of them had more than one wife, some of them had two or three wives, you'd wonder why. He was dealing with things like homosexuality and incest and adultery and fornication. And there was very little marriage fidelity. Uh, there was very little moral fidelity. And Paul wanted the men who were elders to be faithful to one wife, the husband of one wife. And there's to be no scandal in public office. If there's a question mark over a man's morality uh, or... or or a man's moral purity, that man is not to be allowed to stand for office. Notice the, the other word, vigilant. That means he watches for souls. Sober, that means he, he's of a sound mind. He, he has control over his passions. He, he, he looks at things in a very sensible, sane way as he administers rule. He's of good behavior. 
That, that means that he is, um, has a, a well-managed, orderly life. He's, he's modest in his behavior. He's not out of control. Given to hospitality, that, that means he's got an open heart. He's got an open home. Good men are invited in. He's a lover of good men. He's a lover of the stranger. He, he receives them well. He treats them well. He receives them into his home as if he's receiving Christ himself. That's very important. Notice this also. He's apt to teach. I'm not suggesting that the ruling elders are called to preach. But there should be men that can lead a service. Take a meeting. Bring a wee word. Um, over there again in Titus. In Titus 1 and verse 9. If we do a contrast holding fast the faithful word. As he hath been taught. That he may be able by sound doctrine. Both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. He must love the Bible, live by the Bible, be loyal to the Bible. He must have learnt the Bible. He should be able to read a portion and explain it uh, to uh, all that would ask, uh, young and old. If we go back to Timothy, he says here, not given to wine. Uh, that means not a drunkard. He lives a life free from the effects and contamination of alcohol. He definitely couldn't be an alcoholic. Men who develop a drink problem in the church should automatically stand down from office. That's why we hold the fact that elders should be teetotalers. Notice also here, not a striker. No striker. Not a fighter. Not a contentious man. Not somebody who says to the individual, um, I don't get mad, I, I get even. Sadly, some elders love a good fight. They, they love to quarrel. Some are not happy unless they're fighting and arguing with someone else. He's not a striker. Not greedy, a filthy looker. What does that mean? That means he doesn't have a love for money. How, how does an elder or a deacon make decisions about money? Has he kind and generous? Is he open-hearted? If a man's greedy for money and not generous, then that's contrary to what Paul says, not greedy, a filthy looker. And how somebody has a love for money more than a love for God, or, or a love for gold more than a love for God. It mentions here, patient. That means gentle. Remember, he's got a shepherd's father's leader's heart. He, he is patient with the sheep because the sheep are wayward, they're weak but they're worthwhile creatures. Remember that. Not a brawler. It's interesting that he includes this. What does that mean? Not someone who flies into innate rage. Not someone who is unstable. Not someone who would chew you up and spit you out or someone who would hold a grudge against you. I'll fix you. I'll sort you out. Not a covetous man. That, that means not allow his heart and his head to be ruled by I want this and I want that. I'm going to get it at all costs. One that ruleth well his own house. He has the respect of the children, the grandchildren. Remember, it's those who are underage. It's not daring to be with adults. Adult children should have the respect to, to mom and dad. 
But remember, they're responsible for their own behavior because they're now over the age of 18 or over the age of 21. Did you know John Wesley was married to an unsaved woman, a carnal woman? He hated all that he did and stood for and made his life a misery. But John Wesley never uttered a bad word against his wife. He bore it all with a spirit of grace and a spirit of Christ. He has his children living a life of obedience before them. Titus talks about having faithful children. Not not children accused of riotous behavior or unruly behavior. A good report of those that are without is a good testimony. What does the, the, the church think of him? What does the world think? Some men have a rotten testimony outside the church. And, and that's bad for the church because when outreach and missions are on, then they won't come. Not someone who's self-willed. If you read Titus, I have to finish. It says there, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not guilty of, of filthy liquor. In other words, he's not in the office to please himself. He's not trying to be a dictator. He's not dictating to the other men how they should decide and, and what they should do. He respects the views of others. He puts himself in their shoes first. He, he, he tries to see life from their perspective. How can I help my brother? How can I help my sister? How can I help the church? And that's where wisdom comes in. A lover of good men holding, as we have said in Titus, to the faithful word. A man of sound doctrine. A man who knows the gospel. He knows what he believes and why he believes it. A man of conviction. This is all the character that's involved in this man. For the office. And what I want you to do, I'm going to finish, is I want you to pray over 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to study Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Pray over that and then make your decision in light of what the Bible says. Because remember, this is Christ's church and you belong to Christ. You're one of his sheep. Now, our time is gone. I'm just going to um, close, we'll not sing the last hymn. Uh, we'll just have a wee word of prayer. Father, take what has been of thyself this morning. We've only scratched the surface in this great subject, but we pray you'll take these few stumbling, stammering words, write them in all our hearts, write them in the hearts and minds even of the young people growing up, and we pray that the love of Christ and the fear of God will be upon us, especially as we go forward into this election process. We commend ourselves to thee now, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of thyself, and the communion of the Holy Spirit will be upon us, both now and evermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, I apologize for the time this morning.